0: To Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 3. Philippians 1 and verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, thank you so much for allowing us the privilege to read. Thank you for the ability to read. Praise you for preserving your word. And and thank you for your Holy Spirit that he would indeed um, deal with our hearts tonight and that we would as your people, that we would uh, be nurtured in the fellowship, the triune fellowship that we do have with you, your Son, and your Spirit. And again, we just thank you that you've looked upon us. You've looked upon us and made us your children, and so uh, may we, as, as hungry children, uh, feast off your Word tonight, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When you uh, look at uh, prayer in the Bible, and it's it certainly is a good study to study the prayers of the Bible. Uh, if you want to uh, learn how to pray, uh, J.C. Ryle said if you want to learn how to pray, uh, then pray. And he also said that you learn much from hearing the prayers of others. And so when you look at the, the Bible and you want to learn how to pray, uh, certainly go to the Sermon on the Mount and you'll see, what is recognized of the Lord's Prayer? It's actually the template for prayer. Um, the actual Lord's Prayer is in John 17. So when you read the prayers of our Lord, you certainly can 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 glean truths that will help us in our own praying, in particularly John chapter 17. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that the, there's a God-centeredness that opens in, in the form of prayer, and that itself is worth our our noting. Is our Our prayers, we ask the question, are our prayers God-centered? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's all about him before it's anything about us. And that's how prayer is to be shaped. But then as you study the prayers of the Old Testament, uh, you'll find great examples. uh, For instance, of Hezekiah's prayer. Uh, Hezekiah would pray in the midst of much fear. and He shows us how to combat fear through prayer. You look at the prayers of Nehemiah, of Ezra, of Daniel, and you see prayers that are interceding for the nation, for national repentance, which are very, very appropriate for the times in which we live in our country. But then you come to the Apostle Paul's prayer. and A.W. Pink wrote a book about the prayers of the Apostle Paul. And uh, as you read that, he, he expounds these prayers. I don't know if there's anything more richer, apart from the Lord Jesus than to study the prayers of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. In particular, his prison prayers that come from uh, when he was in Rome. The Philippians uh, prayers, the Ephesians prayers, and so forth. And so as we look at tonight, we find his prayer to the Philippians in verse 9 through 11. And as you look at this prayer, and I want to read it again, but and it wasn't a bait and switch. I, I, I didn't advertise that we would be looking... Uh, at the model prayer or a model how to pray, what I really wanted to do, which is a real burden in my life, is to look at the man who was praying, is to look at what was behind the man that could pray such profound prayers. And, and, And notice this as I read it again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's such a richness of theological truth and spiritual reality in how Paul prayed. Whether it be in this prayer or the prayers of Ephesians chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 3. is You find the apostle Paul is just absolutely consumed with the spiritual welfare of those that he was praying for. And he also was quick to, and I'll, I'll mention this again, he was quick to affirm his love for them. And I often wonder in, in attending prayer meetings in the modern church if the Apostle Paul would come and find himself out of place. Is the way that he prayed and the way sometimes we pray, and I'm not knocking our prayers there's nothing wrong with praying for uh, temporal petitions. There's nothing wrong with praying for uh, our needs. We're told that in the Sermon on the Mount. But let's be careful that it isn't so imbalanced that all we do pray is for temporal needs. And thus we miss the richness of the model prayers of the Apostle Paul. And so when we look at the, at, at Paul's prayer to the Philippians. I want us to go behind the scenes. And I want us to ask the question. What is it about this man? And in particular his prayer life. How did he pray such profound prayers? And how did he pray such profound prayers of intercession? A.W. Phelps. Uh, I'm sorry. But Austin Phelps. He was in the, uh, in the Confederacy in the Civil War. And, uh, and I've mentioned his book numerous times. It's a little tiny book. It's not very big. It's called The Still Hour. And he wrote his book about prayer. And it's just it's phenomenal. Um, Solid Ground Christian Books has republished that uh, thing. And it's written in the 1800s. And, um, and Phelps said, you are never more like Jesus than when you are interceding for others. And it's so, it, it's, it's so interesting that you find that the work of the Lord Jesus today is what? Is that he is interceding for his people. We even find, as we will see in Romans chapter 8, as we work our way through that, we will find that even the Spirit Himself is given over to the ministry of intercession. And so we have then that, uh, that at least two members of the Trinity are interceding for us in the work of prayer. And so it would behoove us to look in the heart of this man saved by grace and to look at what made him tick. Why could he pray such fervent intercessory prayers for himself. What's noticeably absent in the Apostle Paul's prayers is any prayers for himself, apart from his desire to express his love for other believers or his desire to be with other believers for the purpose of uplifting them. And I thought, wouldn't that be great as me as a pastor, if that was my heartbeat in my prayer life for you? That it was all about me expressing my love to you, is all about me how I could enrich your life spiritually that's part of our callings for sure but is it part of our prayer lives Is, as elders, is it part of our prayer lives that we are committed to this work of intercession in regards to the spiritual welfare of our people? As we look at the Philippian letter, and like I mentioned uh, in the opening, is we're going to go through numerous passages in here, but we're going to spend the majority of our time here, and we won't be late at all, is we'll work our way through uh, verses 3 through 8 leading up to the prayer, which really reveals the heart of the man who was praying. Now, the city of uh, Philippi, Philippi. it was conquered in 360 B.C. by Philip II of Macedonia. He fortified the city, and thus Philippi comes the name because of King Philip. It was incorporated into the Roman Empire in 167 B.C. In 42 B.C., the territory around the city became the scene of a great battle. It was a battle between the victorious armies of the emperor and the forces commanded by Brutus and Cassius, who, as you know, murdered Julius Caesar. After the battle, quite a few veterans of the Roman uh, armies retired or settled in the city. And in 31 B.C., it became a Roman colony that was under the rules of Italy. And so why do do I say that? Because there was such a, a rich history in this place that set the groundwork for the church. And what the church was consisted of was a diverse bunch of people. A diverse bunch of people. Acts chapter 16 is the biblical account of the Philippian church being found. And we find Lydia, a seller of purple, a very rich one, who uh, it's claimed that she was the the chief funder of the Philippian church. As a result, uh, and and with her, it wasn't a dramatic conversion. It's simply the Lord opened her heart and she received the things that Paul taught. Then you also have a a really poor demon-possessed girl. I mean, she, she, was, uh, she was out of her mind, so to speak. So she becomes part of the Philippian church. And then we have the jailer and his family. And the jailer, unlike Lydia, it wasn't a smooth conversion. Uh, it, was a, it was an earthquake uh, that shook him to the core of his being, and thus he became a follower of the Lord Jesus. And I would venture to say, and it's not, it's not wrong to say this, that there were probably some Roman soldiers in that congregation... Those who had retired, it was said that some of, the, uh, some of their uh, pensions, so to speak, was land parcels around Philippi, so they would be able to, to, to build houses and such as that. So that's kind of the diversity of this church, and it's this diversity that really made this church, uh, so I, I would say, wonderful to be in. Now, when Paul writes to them, and he would commend them for the work of the gospel, we're talking about 10 years, 10 years, so it's not very old by any means. Now, when we bore down on this, we see that these Philippians, they were a deeply affectionate people. They were a deeply affectionate people. They loved the apostle. They loved him. In fact, they would send one of their choice men who is my hero. There's not a whole lot said about this man, but he's my model when it comes to a, a, a person in the Bible that I would like to be like. Is that this man they sent was called Epaphroditus? He was one of the choice men uh, in the Philippi church. We don't know what he was. Uh, maybe he was a leader. But Paul would said, writing to the Philippians, he would say this, that I have thought it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, and your minister, minister to my need. Risking his life, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So you can see that the Philippians were so, uh, they they were grieving that the apostle was was in prison. And so they send one of their choice men. They, They don't send just anybody. It would have been a sacrifice for that church to send Epaphroditus to him. And let's remember, this isn't a small journey. Uh, he's not leaving Macedonia and catching an, an all-Italian flight and going from there to, to Rome. This isn't what he was doing. He had to travel a long ways. And Paul would say that f- for the cause of Christ, he risked his life. It could very well be all the hazards of travel that he encountered. But they loved him so much that they would give the best. That they would give the best. It shows us uh, that there is good individual relationships between the apostle as well as to this church. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul would commend them uh, for their giving, their sacrificial giving for his sake. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And this was not a rich church. Paul would say that they gave out of their poverty. And so that's what love does. Love doesn't, love doesn't say, well, I've got to keep this much for me and then I can give. Love doesn't. Love just gives. And so we have here that the Philippians... Uh, had deep affection for the Apostle Paul. There was this wonderful unity between the Apostle as well as to them. And this unity of love is uh, what was reciprocated by him to them. And how did Paul love them back? He prayed for them. He prayed for them. And he prayed for them with an earnest, which we saw in verses 9 through 11. So, A.W. Pink, he has said this, Quote, the measure of our love for others can largely be determined by the frequency and earnestness of our prayers for them, end quote. I have this friend, he doesn't go to our church, but I have known this man for so long. And um, every Sunday morning, I I get a text from him. It says, I'm praying for you and your ministry today that God would honor his word, that you would know the power of his spirit, that you would know his joy, and that you would love those people to pieces. It's almost what he sends every week. He sends this. And I can count on like clockwork. Before I come over to the office, I, at my phone, there's this text. Here's a man that shows his love by praying, praying for me. And I think what Pink says is so true. The measure of our love for one another is largely to be determined by the frequency and the earnestness of our prayers for, for them. And so if what Philip said in the still hour and what we see in the ministry of Jesus and what we see in the ministry of the Spirit and what we see in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and even in the ministry of the, Paul and the Apostle Peter is that the number one thing that we can do for one another is to pray for one another. And be very careful when you tell someone, I'm praying for you, and then you forget. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, I'm praying for you, and then you forget? It's easy to do. Make sure that we follow through with what we say. Because I, I, the more I get older and the more I, I, I understand even my own walk with the Lord, it is prayer that is the barometer. It is prayer, in this case, the barometer of my love uh, for the church is my love for, um, for His people. Well, now with that by way of introduction, let's work our way through the heart of the Apostle Paul. Look, or I should say, let's look into the life of the Apostle Paul and the and the effectual praying person. Uh, yes, he is the Apostle Paul. Yes, he's unique in history. There will never be another Apostle Paul. But the principles in his life apply to every Christian. And that there's no reason why we as Christians cannot adopt the same principles in prayer that he did because of the outflow of his life in relationships with other Christians. And the first thing that I would say in the life of the effectual praying person is that this person is a Christ-centered person. They have a Christ-centered life about them. Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Many of you have memorized that verse. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. You're serious. You're here tonight, and you're serious about your walk with the Lord. You want to be able to say, and you strive for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But let's understand something. That when this starts to take hold in your life, it goes from just a verse that's been memorized and cited. It starts to transform your life. Is it for me to live as Christ It begins to shape you into becoming like Christ. And that's the evidence that we are living for Christ. Is that we are being shaped into his image. And as such, we begin to adopt the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And that is the ministry of intercession. If a man or woman is consumed with being a Christ-centered person, the natural outflow will be a life of prayer. And prayer primarily for other people. Let me challenge you to do something. Uh, Evaluate your prayer life this week. And put down, make two columns in your prayer life. Make a column. One says, prayers for me, my family, my needs, my this. And then make another column. Say, my prayers for my church family, my other Christians that I know, spiritual things. So make those columns and find out at the end of the week... Which side is heavily slanted? Find out which, one, which side of your life is more geared around those, fair, uh, those flare players of temporal things, or is your life shaped by spiritual and eternal things, and in particular, to lives in other people. The second thing that we see, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 7. The life of the effectual praying person begins with a Christ-centered life. If Christ is the center of our life, that is not just a profession. It is a transformation that's underway. And as that transformation continues to go on and you become more like him, you will adopt more of his ministries. And his ministries will be those of intercession and some other things. But primarily in the life of the Lord Jesus, it's his ongoing intercession. Here's a second Here's a second quality that is in the life of the effectual praying person. Not only is it a Christ-centered life, but it is a Christ-controlled life. A Christ-controlled life. Verse 7 of Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, he gave up a lot. He gave up a lot. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them in the King James as dung or rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This morning uh, in our ABF, we were talking about, Dr. Beakey was talking about how Christians need to be keenly aware and live with the awareness of at least four things. One was death. Two was judgment. What were the other two, Joy? Do you recall? Heaven and hell. He said that those are the four things that should, that should, should daily grip the, the mind of the Christian. Heaven and hell, death and judgment. And if those things we do, uh, do find those things gripping us, do you know what happens? Is that that's transformational too. One, because you know you're going to heaven, you live more thankful that you're not going to hell. And secondly, it deepens your burden for the lost outside who are already on their way to hell. The third thing about judgment is you know that everything in life and everything that you have and everything that you are, including the use of your time, is going to go through you know, the Bema seat. You're just going to be judged. And then he said death. And I'm not sure we think enough about death. Death is certain, all of us, unless Jesus comes back. What is not certain, the day of that. It could be tomorrow. We don't know. And so, when I, I want to bring that into what Paul says here, I count all things but lost for the sake of Christ. And if we really focus on the things of eternity, heaven, hell, death, and judgment, all this stuff—and that's what it is, stuff. And thats what its stuff and i am am not saying be uh, be irresponsible with your stuff. Don't be a bad steward of your stuff. And don't just think, I've got to go take my family and live on a high mountain, Bananac, wherever you guys climb, and you go up there on a the mountain and you just become hermits and you, you wait for, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Be a good steward of your stuff. But everything that you have, from your money, from your time, from your family, from your locations, from everything, everything should be held in our hands like this. Not like this. I'll have, you can have some of this, but I'm holding on to this. No, everything has to be like this. The Apostle Paul says, I count everything but loss. Everything. Everything. Loss. That is a Christ-controlled life. And from a Christ-controlled life, a Christ-centered life becomes a fervency of a man of prayer who all he wants to do is to know this Christ. All he wants to do is is to be about the business of what Christ has left him on the earth for. And that leads to the third thing in the heart of a or a life of effectual praying person. It's not only a Christ centered life, Philippians 1.21, It's not only a Christ controlled life. All things are like this. You know, it's it, it's so freeing when everything is held like this. You know why? Because when it's removed, you don't really you don't really suffer a lot. Now, I'm not I'm not down, diminishing you know the pain, but when you when you hold everything like this, whatever it is. You know it's not yours anyway. Everything that we have, our kids, our money, our time, our lives, everything is something that has been given to us. We own nothing. We have received everything, and all we are is good stewards. And when someone like the Apostle Paul could live Christ-centered, Christ-controlled, he also would live Christ-consumed, and that was Philippians 3.10, that I might know him. Now, you want to be quick to say, but Paul, you do know him. But you already do know him. You've walked with him a good, a good ways now. And Paul would look at us and say, yes, I do know him. But I want to know him more. I, when, I, when I read Philippians 3.10, I'm reminded when we went to, um, when we got to go on vacation over to, to, the, um, to the UK, and, and they'd set up a tour for us down at Mount Moriah. That was the chapel. Uh, in Wales, where the Welsh Revival of 1904-1905 unfolded under Evan Roberts, Evan Roberts had some pretty strange theology, uh, but nevertheless, God used him uh, in a revival that that is estimated went worldwide and an impact over a million souls. But anyway, I remember we walked through the gates there in this little tiny chapel. You know, it wasn't very big. It wasn't very big at all. It was like it was similar to um, I don't know if you if you're familiar with Edward Payson. He was a pastor up in Portland, Maine. Uh, Edward Payson it was a giant. And, um, and he, his memoirs are worth reading. His sermons are just gold. But Joey and I wanted to, uh, wanted to go to Portland, Maine to see Edward Payson's church. And so we go up there, and we're, we're doing all that Google thing, and we find this church. And I'm thinking, this can't be it. And it was so small. I mean, it was half the size of our sanctuary. It wasn't very big at all. And yet, Edwards Payson's ministry in that little church in Portland, Maine, was so powerful and so far-reaching that even now, 150-some years later, we're talking about him, and his books and his sermons are still influencing people. He never went past Portland, Maine, but yet we have his... Well, I get back to the the Welsh chapel. Um, When we went there, and one of the elders was there, and he was waiting for us, and he wanted to give us a tour of the chapel, and they have like a heritage room. Um, it's it's in re, it's in celebration or in recognition of the revival. It's in the back of the church, a little tiny church, and they got all these artifacts from the revival. And so <clears throat> we were in there we were talking uh, to to Dave, the elder, and and stuff. And 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 I asked him. I said, "Well, what happened here?" I said, "It, it was the preaching." And he went, "Ah, it wasn't the preaching." He said, "It was the praying." He says it happened right back there. He was a, a direct descendant from the revival. and he, was, he said it was right back there that a few young people stayed after a prayer meeting, and they wanted to pray, and God began to work. He says, and revival came to our chapel, and the town was turned upside down. That little tiny chapel that had 25 or 30 people, now the streets were lined. People couldn't wait to get into the chapel. And that neighbors were complaining to police because the noise was so loud of people out in the street trying to get into the chapel. And he said, no, Jim. He said, this wasn't a revival of preaching. It was a revival of prayer. And so when you look at, at the Apostle Paul and you see that what made him pray... The same thing that's been characterized by all great revival movements in history. These were Christ-centered men. These were Christ-consumed men. These were Christ-controlled men that led to a fervency of prayer, and God honored that prayer. And God moved in, in periods of uh, of history, even such the Great Awakening. Uh, it was a recovery of of Jonathan Edwards in his in his um, in. Uh, uh, a man named Tracy wrote a book on the Great Awakening, the History of the Great Awakening, and he opens it up by saying that Jonathan Edwards contributed the movement of the Great Awakening in the early 1730s to his preaching on justification by prayer, I'm sorry, justification by faith, and also the fervency of prayer. Edwards pushed for a united concert of prayer among churches. And so, I say all that to say all this, is that it is the Christ-consumed life, it is the Christ-controlled life, it is the Christ-centered life that leads to the fervency of prayer. Paul prays like he prays in his letters because of his his absolute obsession with the person of Jesus Christ. There's a 1,500-year-old prayer which still stirs the hearts if you haven't read it. It's very inspiring and helpful. Um... It's called St. Patrick's Breastplate. Here's part of it. Christ be with me, Christ in the front. Christ in the rear, Christ within me. Christ below me, Christ above me. Christ at my right hand, Christ at my left. Christ in the fort, Christ in the chariot seat. Christ at the helm, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks to me. Christ in every ear that sees me, every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. It was supposedly written by uh, uh, St. Patrick, one of the, uh, uh, the great saints of, of Ireland. But nevertheless, the prayer shows really what the Apostle Paul was all about. It was all about the person of Jesus. And if we're going to be a person, people of fervent prayer, intercessory prayer as Paul, then it must be out of a Christ-centered life. Christ-controlled life and a Christ-consumed life. Now let's uh, look at verses three through nine, and we got about ten or fifteen minutes. We're going to look at four things in the Apostle Paul from this text, verses three through nine, that shows us what his heart was like. Now we've looked at his life. We looked at individually, you know, what he was, what made him tick, and what made him tick was the Christ-centered life, the Christ-consumed life, the Christ-controlled life. That that was the Apostle Paul, and so when you when you see these verses 3 through 9 we get a look into the heart of of his love his affection for these people he's praying for and, and and i pray that this would become us if it's not already that we would be a people that really do know what it means to love one another and and evidenced by our praying for one another verses 3 through 9 both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I should have stopped at verse uh, 8. But can you imagine getting a letter from the great apostle? And this is what he says about us? Dear Saints at Quineset, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure, dearly beloved Equinescent, that he who began a work, good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness how I yearn for every one of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you imagine being a young Christian and the great apostle, the greatest Christian who ever lived, would write that about us? Would write that about these young, these 10-year-old Christians? Four things, four things in Paul. The first thing, his heart and mind were on these believers. The greatest foe, and I've told you this numerous times, the greatest foe that you have in the Christian life is the person that you greet in the mirror every day. The power of self-love is so great. And the only way to destroy self-love is to be what Paul was. Crucified with Christ, risen with Christ, so that you could be a Christ-controlled person, a Christ-centered person, and a Christ-consumed person. My biggest problem is I think way too much of myself. Is I focus way too much on me. And notice what Paul says in verses 3 through 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I don't believe for a second he languished in a cell and was saying, Woe is me, look how I'm being treated. Woe is me, look how hard it is for me. I don't believe that for a second. I believe like John Bunyan, he saw prison as an opportunity. And so what, is, what, what do we get out of prison for John Bunyan? We get Pilgrim's Progress. What do we get out of the Apostle Paul? We get these profound letters on how to pray. And one of the causes of neglecting to pray for one another is we simply don't think enough of one another. And Paul would say that his heart and mind were on these believers. And Paul's life revolved around Christ, as I mentioned, but it also included the interest of others. And that's how it always is. The more that you're consumed with Jesus, the less you're consumed with yourself. And the more that you're consumed with Jesus, the more that the interests of others replace self. You know, I've heard a definition of humility, and it is a good definition. Humility is not thinking much about yourself. But I, I read a better definition. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. And that's what is produced by this type of prayer life. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That doesn't mean neglect your own interests, but what it does say is don't be obsessed with your own interest. In Philippians 2.21, he would say for all those, seek they seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, which is indictment he's making on them. Notice other thing in verse 3. Here's the second thing that we see in the heart of the apostle Paul. Not only was his heart and mind on these believers, but he was thankful for these believers. He was thankful for these believers. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. If I was to ask you what is, and we talked about this Holy Spirit this morning, if I was to ask you what are the evidence that you are possessed with the Spirit of God and that you're filled with the Spirit of God, how would you answer me? What would be the evidence of those? There are some places it says you have to speak in tongues. There are some places you have to, have to display some miraculous sign gift. Neither of those are true. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 18, we have the evidence that a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit a command. And then he would Paul would would identify what is the evidence that we are filled with the spirit. He would say addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of the fear of Christ or the reverence for Christ. There are four Truths that he tells us that give evidence of being filled with the Spirit. You could, we could spend a month, a month just expounding on those. But one thing I want you to note is the mark of a person that is filled with the Spirit and thus living a Christ-centered life, a Christ-consumed life, you know, a, a Christ-controlled um, life, is it, It's he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says one of the evidence is that giving thanks always and for everything. I don't know about you, but I don't do that well. I don't, I don't give thanks. And Paul says you are to give thanks always in everything. And that means when things aren't going well, you give thanks. That means when things are, are just don't look good, you give thanks. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, because of his Christ-centeredness, his Christ-consumed life, his Christ-controlled life, and because his heart was on these Philippians, what did he do? He gave thanks for them. He writes, seven, he writes to seven churches. Six of them, he gives thanks for the believers. This won't make any of you uncomfortable, but here's a question for you. When's the last time that you had a season of prayer... And all you did was give thanks to God for fellow believers. And when is the last time that you've reached out to a fellow believer who has been impactful in your life and has made a difference in your walk for the Lord Jesus, and you told that person, I thank God for you. Giving thanks in all things, that includes people. Paul would write in Romans 1:8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He would write in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 7, I give thanks to my God always for you. Ephesians one15 through 16. I, give, I never cease to give thanks for you. Colossians 1, 3 through 4 is that we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and we always give thanks to God the Father for you. Philippians 1, 3 through 5, we just read that. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, we always to give thanks to God for you. Here's a practical lesson and a practical application for you. Make it a point every week to thank at least one believer who has made a difference in your life. It might be a card, it might be an email, it might be a text. I told you about my friend. You don't realize how powerful that is in the life of a fellow believer. Paul did. Paul did because that's what he practiced. And friends, when Jesus Christ is the center of our life, we will give thanks. We will give thanks in all things. Now, I don't want you to feel discouraged and walk out of here and say, well, I must not even be a Christian. That's not what I want you to do. What I want you to do is to realize just how thankful we should be, and then ask God to help us to be a Christ-controlled person, a Christ-consumed person, a Christ-living person, so that we are able to give thanks in all things. There is a Christian in our church, and I I don't have anybody in my mind, there is a Christian in our church that needs you to give thanks to God for them, and you need to be able to Throw down the, the guardedness and thank God for that person. It may be the very thing they need to keep, keep fighting the good fight of faith. There may be a Christian in our, among us who is discouraged, who's depressed, who's been through the wringer, and they feel like they can't go on another day, and yet what, ha, what, what would happen if you reached out to them and just you know what, I've watched your faithfulness. I've watched you struggle and I've watched you maintain a fervency of of love for Christ and I so appreciate. You know how long it take you to do that less than 30 seconds. And the reason why we don't do that is because of the very thing I say is that when we are so consumed with self-love we're oblivious to other people. We're oblivious to other people. And if we're oblivious to other people, we have no right to, be, to say we're, we're filled with the Spirit. And we certainly cannot claim to be Christ-centered if we're oblivious to other people. And Jesus saw the crowds, and they were without a shepherd. And though he had compassion on them, the good Samaritan, what did he do? He saw the hurt, and he went to the hurt, and he met the need of the hurt. So there's your assignment. Find ways to give thanks to God for believers who have impacted your life. And then reach out and don't be afraid to tell them you love them. Paul wasn't. We're going to see that here as we wind this thing down. We're going to see the Apostle Paul. He wasn't afraid to tell other believers, I love you. I, got a, uh, I, got, I have a friend in Florida. and um, I've never met the man in person. I've met him uh, in, a, in a Zoom Bible study. And um, that goes on every Tuesday. Uh, he's an ex-Marine, uh, which I gave him a pass on that. Um, you know, I and he um, he texted me late last night. He said, "Hey, he's a fairly young Christian, as is his wife. Uh, they're in a really good church down there. They're in a, a good Reformed church, and they're growing. And uh, he we've we developed this 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 distant friendship and." Uh, you know, hopefully when I, we go down to see Allison in a quit and, and uh, we'll go over and see Al and Deb. But this is what he sent me a text. He said, Hey, he said, I had a colonoscopy and it came back and uh, it doesn't look very good. And my first thought was, oh no, I got one of those coming. And, uh, but he said, he said in the text, he goes, it doesn't look very good. He said, I'm okay with this. He says, just pray for me. And, and he says, just pray for me. And, And so I responded back and I said, Hey, Marine, I love you and I'll pray for you. And he texts back to me. He says, Love you, Master Chief, and I pray for you every day. You know how long it took for that dialogue to give mutual encouragement to each other? About three minutes. Friends, the reason why that we may be languishing in our own personal experience with the Lord Jesus is because we're not so consumed with Him that we have we have not laid aside self-interest and focused more on the interest of others. And the Apostle Paul, this was the third thing I want to give you tonight. Not only from his heart, his heart and mind were on these believers. He was thankful for, for these believers, but he was also aware of, of his grace kinship with these believers. Now let me qualify that for a minute. What it means is he understood that, they, that there was an equality with him and these Philippians. He didn't lord it over. He said, well, I'm the pastor. I can't do that. He never lorded it over. In fact, he gave them much affirmation for a couple of things. The first thing in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, look what he says. Because of your partnership in the gospel, I thank God for you because of your partnership in the gospel. Can you imagine being a 10-year-old Christian and the Apostle Paul who goes around everywhere starting churches? He looks at you and he says, you know what? I am so grateful because you work alongside of me in the gospel. How encouraging would that be? The Apostle Paul saw no hierarchy. He understood his unique role. But I want you to read uh, his letters in the openings. And I want you to read what his business card says. The Apostle Paul, slave of Christ. He could have had a lot of letters after his name. He really could have from his former life. And I'm not saying don't have letters after your name. That's fine. But don't let those things cause you to distance yourself and to think that we are above. Because Paul says to the Philippians, you are, you are my partners. We are in this together in the kinship of the gospel. He would even say in chapter 4, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel. I can't imagine how encouraging that would be to have the Apostle Paul put his arm around me or put his arm around one of you and say, listen, you and I, we're in this together. We work the gospel together. That's what a Christ-consumed life will do. At the foot of the cross, you know what? The ground is equal. We're all the same. And that's the second thing that he would say. He was aware of their grace uh, kinship in the family of God. In verse 7, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. There is no fair, right, self-righteous, pharisaical, I'm better than you looking down. He says, you are all partakers with me of grace. And he would say to the Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. Friends, there's nothing good about any of us. We are all what we are by the grace of God, period. And so there's no room for boasting. There's no room for, for isolating or separating ourselves. We are all in this together. We are partners in the gospel. We are in all this together by grace. We are joint heirs with, God, with Christ. And why? Is because it's all of Him. And a Christ-centered, a Christ-consumed, and a Christ-controlled person will live that way. They will look around the landscape and they'll see that I may have a different calling. I may have a different, uh, uh, a different role in the body of Christ, but it makes me no better than anybody else. We all are called to be foot-washing servants. If the Creator could wash the feet of people, how much more us? And then finally, and we'll end with this. Philippians 1.8, and I've already talked about this a few times. From his heart... What, what a wonderful heart we see in the Apostle Paul. And that's why he could pray these prayers, because his life was consumed with Christ. It was controlled by Christ. It was centered on Christ. And his heart reflected that transformation. His heart and mind were on the other believers far more than they were on himself. He gave thanks for these other believers, which means he had learned to put self on a shelf Thirdly, he was aware that everything that he was and they were was by the common grace in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And finally, look at verse 8. And this is a wonderful way to end it. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Our fellowship is not based on common interest. Our, Our fellowship is not based on because I hang around with guys who like sports. It's fine. That's what the world does. Our fellowship with each other, whether we're 80 or whether we're 5, it is founded on the affection that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He expressed his love and he gave the source of it to these believers. He expressed his love and he gave the source and it was the love of Christ controlling this man's heart. tell you one one quick story and we're done is um, I was on a um, I was on a ship and there was this there was this um, this other Christian and this this guy he was a little different and um, this guy wanted to spend so much time with me and I really didn't have anything in common with him at all nothing I like sports he couldn't spell the name he was in supply I was in combat systems so we never met But we'd have Bible studies, and he just constantly wanted to hang out with me, and I wasn't very receptive to that. And so we were getting ready. There's three other Christians who were in the Bible study on the ship, and uh, we all loved college basketball. So we were going to go. We were in Norfolk. We were going to go to Greensboro, North Carolina, for the first round of March Madness. We were going to watch the first round of the college basketball uh, tournament. So we had these tickets, and uh, West Virginia was playing. So we were all excited about going. Well, this guy that I, I just didn't have anything in common and really didn't enjoy spending time with him, he, he, wanted, he, he got winded we were going to go, and he came to me. He says, I'd like to go. And uh, I said, well, you don't really like basketball, do you? He goes, well, no. He goes, no, I don't really care at all about it. I said, we're going to be gone for three days, and we're going to watch about four to eight basketball games. He says, okay. He said, I still want to go. I said, well, well, why do you want to go? He says, because I want to hang around with you guys. Because I want to hang around with my Christian brothers. I felt about this high. I felt crushed. Because I was isolating this man from fellowship when I forgot that our common bond was Jesus Christ. It wasn't worldly interest. Nothing wrong with worldly interests. But if you are only hanging around with Christians who like the same things that you like, then what's the difference than going down to the pub and hanging out with those guys? There's nothing. And so he did go. Fred went to, and after the the three days, did he like basketball? Not at all. Not at all. But you know what he really liked? He liked the fact that he got to fellowship with his his brothers. And you know what? I started really enjoying being with Fred. Fred. Because the Lord showed me, you pompous, prideful individual, is that our commonality is Jesus Christ, like Paul did with Philippians. And if you try to add anything to that or make it a higher priority than that, then we are not even understanding what biblical fellowship is. Our commonality is Jesus Christ. And we should want to be in the presence of each other just for that very purpose. Because what happens is Christ consumed people, Christ controlled people, Christ, that are sinner that, that, uh, people, you know what they do? They're infectious. Is a lead to other people becoming those type of people. And then we're able to pray for one another, just like Paul prayed for these Philippians. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for giving us a fine example of Christian fellowship, of a Christian who forgot totally himself for the sake of others. And that though languishing in a prison, he expressed his love for these dear, dear people that you had used to bring them to Christ. Father, may we learn from Paul. and May we be a church that is so, so quick to love one another and not afraid to give thanks for one another, not afraid to express our love for one another. And may it all be because of our kinship we have in Jesus. And may we even this week become more of a Christ-centered people, Christ-controlled people, and Christ-consumed you know, people, that we could be transformed to be like Him. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.